Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 7, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, perhaps the longest website address in the history of the world. Or maybe, if, if, it's, if it's not, we need to add a word then to make it the longest one, but it's PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life. I'm general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and soon to be releasing a new book this spring called Spiritual Grit. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that this year we're going to be exploring topics related to spiritual grit in one way or another all year. It's it's like uh, this, this idea of spiritual grit will be the hub of the wheel, and we'll have lots of little spokes, and today is is no exception. We're going to be exploring for the next three weeks. So what you might call uh, kind of the core spiritual practices of the Christian life, but we're going to explore it in an unusual way. We're going to be, each episode for the next three, we're going to be talking to my friend Michael Kiefer, who wrote three little practical, jesus Center practical guides um, to prayer, knowing God's will, and how to read the Bible. And these are three core practices in our Christian life, but I want to take them out of the realm of disciplines that we need to do, or try harder to get better at these things. We're going to extract them from that world, and we're going to explore these things as fruits of our growing intimacy with Jesus. We're going to explore what it looks like to live in these things the way Jesus intended us to live in these things. So one way to do that is we're we're simply going to put ourselves in the shoes or the sandal thingies of Jesus' disciples who were actually with him and watching him model these everyday ways of living closely connected to God. We're going to put ourselves in their shoes because they learned what these quote-unquote spiritual disciplines, what they look like, they learned these directly from experiencing Jesus. So again, we're going to attach this back to this idea of spiritual grit, which is we all have challenges in front of us, heartbreaks and difficulties in our life now and in the past that are still impacting us. Uh, We have things that we need strength and perseverance to face. Just everyday life for many people requires a great deal of grit, and there's been a lot of talk about grit in the last few years as there's been more and more research into why grit and resilience and perseverance are so important in life and what difference they make in the lives of people who have grit and what deficits they bring in the, in the lives of those who don't. But there hasn't been much exploration about how this is related to a relationship with God, and that's what I really explore in Spiritual Grit. We all have uh, what I would call a, a, a bucket of grit that will give us something to respond with when we're in the midst of challenge, but the bucket gets empty pretty quick. And what Jesus is offering us is attachment to a deep well of core strength um, in our relationship with Him. So um, I mentioned that Spiritual Grit is coming out in, uh, in April. It just shipped to the printer yesterday, so that, that's a momentous thing for, for me. It was a, uh, the kind of the end of a long and winding road. 
uh, once it's shipped to the printer, I can't change anything, <laughs> which uh, the, our, our publishing team here is very grateful for. But just at the last minute, uh, I, was, you know, I was gathering endorsements for the book. That's what you do when you publish a book. You, you uh, send the early manuscript out to uh, the people that you want to, to see if they will read and endorse the book. And it was a pretty tight timeline for this, and I, I was just so grateful for the many people who read the book and endorsed it. And I thought I'd just read you one of these as a little uh, as a little teaser to what's coming in April. I, I sent a copy to Rich Stearns, who's the president of World Vision and author of The Hole in Our Gospel and other books, and he's, he's one of the most influential Christian leaders in the world, and he's head of the largest relief Christian relief agency in the world. And if anyone's needed grit to be the president of a relief agency in such a time as this, Rich Stearns is him. And so I thought I'd just read you what he said about the book. It it was such a blessing to me that he read it and said this about it. So here's what he said. God calls us to a risky and sacrificial faith, and yet even Christians give in to fear-mongering and the pitfalls of playing it safe. Where in the Bible does it say, don't take risks for your faith? Which of Jesus' disciples avoided danger in witnessing to the risen Christ? Spiritual grit's an excellent exploration of the metal necessary for following Jesus, who literally loved us to death and who invites us on an often reckless adventure to change the world for him. I just love that. Uh, and I especially love what he said, that, that it's uh, an exploration of the metal necessary for following Jesus. That's M-E-T-T-L-E, the metal necessary. And I love that because when we when we talk about what you might call spiritual practices, those are expressions of our metal in a way. So, so today we're going to explore something that's actually a really big deal in our life. It's almost like breathing in our relationship with Jesus, but this thing is rife with misconceptions. It has, we have ridiculous assumptions about it. We often childishly manipulate in this arena. It's, it's, a, it's an area that is it's so basic to us, but it's so fraught with misconception that I thought it was a good one to kick this off. So that's a little cliffhanger. Of course, I'm talking about prayer and all of the odd beliefs and behaviors that surround prayer. So, for example, these are just some stuff off the top of my head. So when we pray, we often use a different level and tone of voice when we pray. Like, we use a softer voice than normal when we pray. That's odd. Why do we do that? Or, you know, I was just with my small group the other night, and uh, I asked them at the beginning of our gathering to close their eyes because we were going to pray. And and surprisingly, we don't often pray to begin things. And I told them the reason we don't is I don't like rote anything. And often in groups that we're a part of, we start off in prayer because that's what we're supposed to do. We start in prayer. And so I often don't start in prayer so that so that it doesn't become a rote thing. But the other rote thing is when you when somebody asks you to close your eyes to pray. So as their eyes were closed, I said, "By the way, it doesn't make the prayer holier to to close your eyes." <laughs> the reason we close our eyes is because we're talking to somebody we can't see, and it helps to kind of shut out the things we can see so that we can focus. But there's we, I think we grow up thinking there's something magical about closing our eyes when we pray, that it's like a Harry Potter effect of some kind. So, But it's not. And uh, so, you know, why do we use 
strange conversational patterns when we pray. I mean, like when we change the tenor or the cadence of our voice, or we use, uh, if you notice some people pray out loud in a kind of a public setting where they feel like they have to perform with their prayer. So a lot of times people will use just. Uh, God, I just want to tell you just, you know, how much I just, just love you, God. They, they use the word just, or they use, they substitute Jesus or God for um, you know, like it, when you say um in a sentence, but when you're praying, you use Jesus or God instead of um. Like, uh, Jesus, I just want to let you know, Jesus, how, um, you know, Jesus, uh, we have these odd patterns that only exist <laughs> when we're praying. Or when we pray with people, other people, we sometimes adopt kind of a formal body language. Our whole, our whole kind of sort of countenance and body language changes, and we use phrases that we'd never use in any, like, everyday context in our life. So there, there's all this stuff that swirls around prayer, and throw in boredom <laughs> to that. It's one of the chief reasons why people don't pray, because they think they're supposed to pray. It, the whole thing seems kind of boring, and like, you got to get it right. So that's why we're going to kick this off uh, in my first interview with Michael Kiefer about his little Jesus-centered practical guide on how to pray. Again, they're releasing soon, February, end uh, of February, and give you some more information about that in my interview with Michael. But uh, I, I wanted you to listen to, to, to him because he, he had to start from a kind of a blank, a blank slate. Uh, how do you write a book, a practical guide to prayer? So I wanted to—that's how I kind of kicked off the interview. I wanted to find out a little bit more about uh, wh- where do you start with that? What do you have to deal with in yourself to start with that? So let's listen to my uh, short interview with Michael, and then we'll, on the other side of it, we'll explore uh, how Jesus modeled prayer himself and what we can learn from that model. All right, I'm here with Michael Keeper. Uh, Michael and I go way back, mm-hmm. and uh, Michael, as I've mentioned, is, is the author of these three new practical guides, Jesus-centered practical guides. One is called How Do I Pray?, and another one's called How Do I Know God's Will?, and the other one's uh, How Do I Read the Bible?, and uh, they're really a response to uh, people that listen to this podcast and, and other people uh, kind of writing in, emailing us in, that they really need resources like this that can help them with what I might call the basics. And what's interesting, what I thought would be interesting to kick this off is I saw that Philip Yancey wrote a book on prayer not too long ago, and because I love Philip Yancey, I bought the book on prayer, and then I got about 10 pages in, and I thought, oh, I can't read this book. <laughs> It's such, it's such, it's such, there's, there's a certain strata of boredom that comes from reading a, a book about somebody else writing about prayer, and yet this book is, is not at all that way. It's, it's the best book on prayer I've ever read. It's, it's a, when we say they're practical guides, oh boy, is this ever. But Michael, it made me wonder, as you sat down to think about mm-hmm. putting together a practical guide on prayer, kind of what went through your mind? Uh, well, the first thing is, of course, Phil Yancey is one of your listeners, and we're going <laughs> to have a problem with that down the road. <laughs> Sorry, Philip. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the second, I think intimidating comes to mind as far as the feeling. Because like you, I have seen a zillion books on prayer and read the first five pages, almost all of them. I, I, what came to my mind was, since we were looking at practical, the thing to do is to think, 
where are the obstacles? Hmm. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, there have definitely been times when I felt I was aiming at the ceiling and that's as far as my prayers got. So a question arose for me that, what is the problem? What are the what are the barriers, and what can we do about? It? What are the questions that people ask about prayer? And so I went and, and talked to a lot of folks about that too, mm. and just said, practically speaking, not theologically speaking necessarily, not needing uh, for you to explain yourself in detail. Where are you running into problems? And, mm-hmm. and they talked about things like it feels like a chore. I mm. mean, how do I get yeah. to a place where where there's joy in it as opposed to something else? And how do I know if God's answering? How do I what if I can't pray like everybody else? What if I'm not wired like everybody else? Oh, you know what? That that last one, what if I can't pray like everybody else? Mm-hmm. So I lead a small group with young people in it, and I've led small groups with adults in it. And that phrase, what mm-hmm. if they were being honest, they would they would use that phrase to describe their relationship with prayer. Like, a, what if I can't yes. pray the way you're supposed to? And there's a big supposed to that most of us get uh, told about early on, and that can really do some damage. Yeah. So as you explored this for yourself, I mean, this is an interesting project that you were working on because you had to explore your own relationship Mm -hmm. with prayer in order to write about a practical (laughs) guide for prayer. So as you explored the underpinnings of this, um, when you think about what the true purpose of prayer is, where did you land with that, I guess is what I'm trying to say, as you were trying to dig into this, where did you start to land with what the purpose of prayer really is? A great, great question. You know, first of all, the idea of a true purpose of any, when it comes to Jesus, I'm never sure I understand a true purpose. He's always doing things I don't hmm. understand, and there's always more to it than I knew. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's 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 turned out to be annoyingly true through my life. But I, I'll tell you what prayer isn't, uh, and that was a place that I started. When I was a kid, I, I prayed because I was supposed to, and there was always this sense that if I didn't, God would notice and definitely come around later to make sure that I paid for that. And part of it was to report in. Part of it was to tell him what I'd been doing. Some of it was to confess. Some of it was to promise to do better. And always time, always, always at mealtime. I don't know if you were raised in a... Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, not every mealtime. I noticed that it's only um, dinner, really. Well, dinner and and never popsicles out on the playground. I, I notice it's not always what you eat. It is there's there's somewhere there's a dividing. You don't line. have to pray to bless a popsicle because oh, it's, it's pre-blessed, it's inherently blessed. It yeah. is, it yeah. is, and you definitely need to pray for broccoli. I discovered, <laughs> but but that's how I came to prayer, and it wasn't until later that I just you know I, I kind of tumbled across it, and also there were some wise people in my life who pointed it out to me, that it it really is about relationship. And I don't approach any of my friends the way that I approach Jesus in prayer, at least up to that point in my life. Uh, I, I didn't uh, walk up to uh, my buddies and say, well, first I have an agenda, and the agenda is to tell you what I've been doing, where I screwed up, that would be the part they'd be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I needed better friends before I could talk like that. And there were also, you know, I need to, I need to, I need to tell you, I'm sorry about that. Though you remember, I said the same thing yesterday. <laughs> and nobody, I never talked to anybody like that. And and there's no relationship that would survive that kind of a formula. So when I finally got to a place where I realized Jesus is just a fascinating guy. When I got to know more about Jesus and past 
the facts and more to the, you know, what was he doing here? What was he doing there? It it opened up an opportunity for me to just spend some time with a fascinating person. Yeah. And that was cool. So it, it threaded through what you're saying right now, it, it's kind of the elephant in the room, actually, is the way that you see who God is affects profoundly the way that you see what prayer is. Oh, yeah. Really. And so, yep, yep. so I mean, how, how for you is that factored into not only writing this little book, but how has this changed and morphed in your life from the point that you were talking about uh, as a kid? Uh, and I think we can all mm-hmm. relate to kind of what that was like as a kid. So how, what, is this, what is the role of how you see God, and how does that fuel and affect uh, the way you pray? Well, one of the things that, um, that we touched on in the book, actually we, we started there, was to talk about two Baylor researchers, and, and I'm not sure I can pronounce their names. I think it's Frozy. And I know it's Bader or Bader. I'm not sure. But you go there, you'll look around for a couple of researchers. Eventually you'll find them. <laughs> and, and they wrote a book called America's Four Gods, what we say about God and what that says about us. And, and let me just quickly run you through four corners that they kind of found people sure. gathering in. The authoritative God is the God who takes notes about what is and isn't following him, you know, who's doing what. And he's, he's willing to nail people to make him fall in line. The authoritative God. Yeah, and that's where I was. Certainly, that's how I was raised. And that's nobody I want to have a relationship with. Why would I want to spend any time with somebody like that? There's well, you, the, you kind of have a relationship, but it's a, sur- <laughs> it's a servile relationship. Well, really. it's a servile relationship and a duck and cover relationship. Yeah. You know, the less you know about me, probably the better. <laughs> There's a distant God, the watchmaker God kind of thought. And about 24% of Americans see God that way as distant, by the way. And, and as far as the authoritative God... The researchers found about 28% of Americans view God. Almost a third, yeah. Almost a third. Benevolent God is that. It's it's loving, it's supportive, comforting, 22% of Americans in that camp. Now, that's a relationship. That's who you want to spend time with. So think about that just for a second. One out of five Americans see God as someone who is loving, benevolent, and for them. Yes, because you factor in, you do the math, the critical God, and that's the last one. And that's 21% of Americans. Wow. And those are people who, they see God as knowing what's going on, and he's keeping an eye on things, but he's waiting for Judgment Day to drop the bomb. Right. That's when the shoe drops, and it's going to be right on you. Yeah. So that's nobody you want to spend time with either. Yeah. So how you view God affects how you view yourself, and it definitely affects how you do or don't want to pray. And in at least three of those quadrants, then, it also sort of funnels you into a sort of a, if when you pray, it's functionally for leverage to get something you want, or it's not, it's not a normal part of a relationship if you're in one of those three quadrants that is not malevolent, no. but benevolent. It's, it's not a uh, kind of a stream throwing, flowing through your relationship, it's something else other than that for sure yes. in those quadrants. Yes, it's very much other. Um, my prayer life, and, and I'm not really sure what to do with that term. I hear it a lot. That makes it sound as if prayer is this thing that you do mm-hmm. apart from the regular life. But That's uh, good. That's a good distinction, too. Yeah, That's yeah, subtle. It's subtle, but boy, is it meaningful. The, the prayer that I'm involved in, I find, is far more relational. If, if, uh, and let me tell you how that works. It also was a huge thing for me to move from praying out of my head to praying 
out of my emotions. Mm. And here's the difference. When, I, you know, like, like you, I am a, a wise, theologically trained person. You're not one. Yeah, that's on my business card. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want people to know right off the bat. Well, you know, you don't want to have people make a mistake. <laughs> about that. They'll question you less if you tell it to them in print. But we have, you know, I, I went to Bible college, and, and so I would pray by letting God know how much I knew. You know, Lord, as you've said in Deuteronomy. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, it had to be boring for God. I'm just amazed I'm not a pile of steaming bacon bits someplace. Mm. But that's a benevolent God. When I finally got through having to prove my credentials to God and just said, God, it's been a crappy day. Mm-hmm. It's been a terrible day, and I don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. That's when things start to get authentic in my prayer. Mm-hmm. God cares a great deal about our emotions and our heart. So it makes me think about this, this kind of phrase or at least a thought that is very common to us around prayer, mm-hmm. where we talk about whether prayer works or not, <laughs> yeah. whether whether that was uh, did my prayer get answered or not, or did my prayer work or not. So, what what are some of the, uh, I guess you'd say, pitfalls surrounding that kind of mentality? Well, the the first one is just the premise. The, it's a transactional premise. It's a I ask, you give, and by work, big quotes around that. That means I either got what I wanted or you had a reasonable explanation why you didn't give it to me, God. Mm. You know, I'm expecting you to deliver. It's a transaction. And, and that's how our click and buy culture works. And it's, it's understandable why people would feel that way because Amazon lets me do that. You know, if I want it, I can ask for it. I can get it very quickly, and I can even get it delivered overnight. Two problems. Jesus never said he had a transactional relationship with you, me, or anybody else is listening. That is just not how the kingdom of God works. And that's the first problem. We're just off the reservation. We're in the Jesus One Click Club. Second one flows out of that, and it's that we have this unreasonable expectation between us and Jesus. Hey, you didn't show up. You're not my friend. And again, that's not how you're going to keep a friendship, having that expectation. Expecting Jesus to do something that he never promised to do. He never promised to always give you what you want. So the leverage of is my prayer working or not uh, let me go back to what I said when we first started. There's always more going on than you see. Mm. And and giving Jesus the latitude in my life to be doing things without having to explain them to me up front, that is a, that's a relational kind of decision. So, and, and just to kind of play off the thing that you just said about a transactional relationship with Jesus, we've talked about that often on this podcast, that, that it's kind of like, I got this picture as you were talking about this, like that arcade game where... The big metal, you put your money in, the big metal claw, oh, claw? comes down. Yeah, I've never comes, won that. And comes down, and it's supposed to grab the very thing that you want, but it never really does. And usually it grabs air, but if it did grab something, it didn't grab the thing you wanted. It's kind of like that, the, a transactional relationship with Jesus like that. Hey, I put my quarter in, mm-hmm. and I'm going to watch to see if the claw comes down and grabs the thing that I asked for. And if it didn't, maybe I need to put another quarter in. Or maybe I need to toggle that thing differently than I did the first time. Yeah, yeah. Like, like to to I, I need to make this thing work better than it did this last time because I didn't get the claws didn't grab the thing I wanted. So think about this from the perspective of Jesus. If he's being treated like an arcade game like that, that is the antithesis of relationship. He he just becomes a function. He he's something to drop your coin into at that point, which. 
he, he cares about the nature of his relationship with us. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that he thwarts transactional approaches to relationship because he understands that that will never lead to intimacy. Well, I've got to agree with you, but you've just ruined me walking into Safeway for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, they've got stop one of those putting machines. quarters in those machines, Michael. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. I'm going to assume that that's a God sighting. <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you: if if prayer is uh, kind of enclosed within the normalcy of relationship, it's kind of bizarre because it's a relationship where we can't see, hear, taste, oh, touch, yeah. touch the person. And yeah. So there's some. Bizarro things that grow up around prayer just because of the unusual nature of it. Yes. So if it's if it actually is though intended to be uh, a pipeline of relationship in our life with Jesus, how do we move from this kind of transactional approach to something that's more normalized in general? So I'm not. I mean, I know this could take the rest of the podcast to answer that question, but what are some things you think about with that? Well, we talk about that. We those are you probably have a constellation there that four or five of the chapters of this little book yeah. rotate around because those are the things that people said they were dealing with. For me, um, shutting up had a great deal to do with it. <laughs> I mean, there's very few relationships where I do all the talking and survive, or the relationship survives. So, as far as how to how to move it to being more normal. Uh, I've heard a lot of tips, and we, we suggest some in the book, um, p- things people have done that have mattered to them. I'm not sure there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. I've heard of people who say, you know, look, I just I always like put the seatbelt on in the morning, and I talk to Jesus on the way in as I commute to work. And that may be very good for somebody who's uh, very able to, to uh, picture that and totally not work for somebody else. I think the thing to do is to say... I'm done reporting, and I'd like to listen as well as speak. Hmm. And I would like to talk about my feelings as well as what I think. As simple as that is, hmm. I, I can only answer that for me, Rick. And, and for me, those were big points. That's good. I love that. Well, I, I appreciate you talking through some of this uh, with us today. And on the other side of this, we're going to explore some of the ways Jesus modeled prayer for his mm-hmm. disciples and what, what we can learn from how Jesus approached this conversationally himself. That Just to reiterate, though, uh, we'll put this as a link on our podcast page, that if you want to check out these three little books that, that Michael put together, they're releasing February 27th, but you can pre-order them on our own site or on Amazon right now. And, and uh, they're three little practical guides that I think uh, they're, 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 kind of, they're kind of like a devotional, mm-hmm. but not in the sense that there are, they are packed with the great ideas, ways to kind of experiment and play with all of these things, prayer, knowing God's will, and the Bible. That's what makes them so unusual. So I highly encourage you guys to go uh, check these out. They're, they're one of a kind. I've never seen anything like these. So, Michael, thank you for all of the creative investment you put in these, and thanks for being on today. Hey, you're welcome, Rick. And I'm going to go send one of these to, uh, who was the guy you mentioned earlier? Yeah, that guy, Philip Yancey. Yeah. He's a I'm, little bit well-known. He is well-known. I can yeah. find his address online. Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for your help. See ya. Okay, so running through that uh, conversation, one thing we we talked about a little bit is this whole idea of prayer as a transaction, our relationship with Jesus as a transaction, but the, kind of the subset of that is we treat prayer like a tool 
in a way that gives us kind of leverage for the things we really want. But let me say that again. We often treat prayer like it's a tool to leverage the things we really want in life. But Jesus, however, treats prayer quite differently than that. He treats prayer as a connection to the thing he really wants. And what he really wants is a deep, playful, intimate, everyday relationship with us. He doesn't see prayer as a lever that that exists only for the big metal claw to come down and grab the thing that we want. He sees it as a pipeline in our relationship with, with us, and a relationship with us is what he wants more than anything else. So I thought what we'd do is explore three different places uh, where Jesus is either trying to teach his disciples a different way of thinking about prayer, or he's modeling it for them, and then we'll close off with some some pragmatic things that can maybe upend your normal relationship with prayer. So I think we're going to start off in Matthew 6, where um, Jesus is sort of in the middle of this long stretch of trying to kind of compare and contrast how we typically do things in life with the contrast of how things are done in the kingdom of God. So he's trying to say, I know you guys do this this way, but actually um, the way to do this thing that you do is this way. This is how we do it in the kingdom of God. So there's a little section in Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking about with his disciples and, and those who are listening to him at the time. He's talking about prayer and fasting. So let me just pick it up in verse 5. So this is chapter 6 of Matthew. I'll read a little section here, and we'll talk about it. So he says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. So pray like this. Now this part is, I'm sure you've heard before, but I just want to emphasize the lead-in to this, that it's important to understand the context and what Jesus was doing. And what He said was, not pray these words— he said, pray like this. He's not asking us to repeat these words in a rote way. He's asking us to pay attention to the way in which he's praying so we can understand kind of the, the ethic or the ethos of what he's talking about around prayer. So when he says, pray like this, don't think of this now about what I'm about to read as, oh, these are the words that I'm supposed to pray. Instead, think about the way in which Jesus is praying, because that's what he wants us to pay attention to. So then he says this, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So if we take seriously, slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus here, as he's saying, don't pray these words, just, but just pray like this. What is the like this that we can notice in the way that he prays here? He starts off very affectionately, very intimately, by saying, 
our Father. It's really, uh, if you went back to the original Hebrew in this, he would be saying, my Abba, which is equivalent to saying, my Daddy. So he's, he's saying, start off by expressing the level of intimacy you have with him. Don't stand far off, as Michael said, don't stand in that quadrant where God is authoritarian or distant or critical. Don't stand far off as if he's a, a, a taskmaster or a master sergeant. Call him daddy. You, you kind of get this picture of one of my favorite feelings in life still is my teenage daughters, who when they forget that they're teenage daughters, sometimes snuggle into me when we're sitting on a couch, or they, they rest their head on my shoulder. It's a unconscious act of intimacy, and it, and it shows the, the, the kind of relaxed safety they feel around me, and that this kind of unguardedness around me, I just love it. And I think what Jesus is saying is, when you enter into a conversation with God, what He would love is for you to address Him as Daddy, to lean over and put, kind of metaphorically, put your head on His shoulder, uh, to, to express how much safety and security you feel in his presence, and to treat him that way. And uh, then he says, may your name be kept holy. So in the context of that intimacy, he's saying, and I also remember, you are amazing. <laughs> you are unlike no other. I see you for who you are. It's, it's a form of worship to express our recognition of the holiness of God. And holy doesn't mean, I think, the same thing that we thought it meant growing up. Holy doesn't mean strange and distant and unreachable. What it means is different. It's like when you think about a person you have tremendous respect for, and you're telling another friend about this person, and you start to describe what makes them distinct and unique in your life, like they're the kind of person that says and does things that's that's different from your other friends but you're and so you're describing what's different about this person that's what holy is it's describing god accurately for how different he is and part of that difference is how incredibly good he is he sets the standard for good i still you've heard this me say this before on the podcast but my favorite quote of all time is gk chesterton's quote where he said if if you're going to learn from the jesus of the gospels then you're going to have to change your definition of love or you won't be able to stand him. I just love that because what he's saying is Jesus sets the standard for goodness. Jesus sets the standard for love. You're going to have to lay down what you thought it was and pick up what he says it is. So that's what it means to recognize that God is holy, that he's different. Then he says, may your kingdom come soon. And what he means here is that may the way of life that we live together, oh, I long for everyone to live this way. I want your kingdom, the way you live, the, way, the, the behavior patterns, the customs of the kingdom of God, I want them to be normal for us, because he knows how good they are. And then he says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, I see how your will brings life and goodness in heaven, I want the same thing to happen here on earth a much bigger challenge, because we live in a broken world. And Jesus is saying, I want, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this broken world, I want your life, the way that you live, and the way that your will is expressed in heaven, I want it to be the same 
here on earth. Then he turns a corner and he says, give us today the food we need. So he's basically saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with talking to your father, to your Abba, to your daddy about the, the things that concern you, including enough food to eat, the very basic things in life. There's nothing wrong with sharing the average, everyday, basic things that we take for granted, but sometimes feel threatened by. That, that, that's, what, that's what we're called to share with him, the everyday, minute aspects of our life or the basic aspects of our life. Then he says, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. So here he's, he's saying, and we also want to drag into the light the things that we have done to hurt and break relationship with others or to damage other people or uh, the disobedient things that we have done. We want to drag those into the light with you, God. We don't want to hide anything from you. We know that you can see all these things, but it's important for us to, to admit, to say, these are the things that are in the dark. I want to share them with you because it's another way of trust and intimacy when we share what's in the darkness with him. And he says, please forgive us those sins in the same way we've forgiven those who've sinned against us. So we're tying this actually to our behavior, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't, don't, don't just come to me with these things. Think about also how you're relating to the people around you, and drag that into the light as well. And then the, the last thing he says is, don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So he's here he's just simply saying, ask him for strength. Now this fits right into the whole theme of spiritual grit. Instead of simply relying on your own strength and muscling it through, he's saying here, no, come, come to your Abba, come to your Daddy, and ask him for the strength to resist temptation, to stand when standing is hard. Ask him for what he has. Ask him for his resources. And then he, then he just bluntly says, and rescue us from the evil one. I mean, we know that we have a, an enemy whose job description is to steal and kill and destroy. And, th- and when we recognize that's the truth, Jesus is saying, simply come to your, come to your daddy and ask for refuge from that. If, if you are being attacked, ask for rescue, rescue from that. All of these, I think you can see as we go down kind of through how Jesus prayed, if we say, uh, Jesus says, pray like this, all of these are, are different facets, like on a diamond, of intimacy, ways of relating to God in intimate ways. And so all of these are just different arrows toward that. Okay, so let's uh, flip over to Luke 11 now, where there's a kind of a same, a different version of the same kind of encounter. And the reason I want to flip over to this is, again, in this, in this version, in Luke 11, one of the disciples kind of comes right out and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. We want to learn from you how to pray. They'd already seen Jesus modeling prayer many times, so that's what led Jesus into uh, what we would call the Lord's Prayer, uh, so that we just walked through. But, but um, I love in this version, in Luke's version, Jesus adds a little story onto the end of this, and I thought this was fascinating. So again, think about this. So he's just said to them, this is, this is the way, if you pay attention now, this is the way that you pray. Not these words, but this kind of way of relating to God is, is what I want to model for you. And then right after he says that, he says, well, let me tell you a story of, that kind of gets to the core of your question. So here's the story. He said, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. 
and you say to him, A friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, Don't bother me! The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you! But I tell you this, Jesus says, though he won't do it for a friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. <laughs> I, this is Jesus at his funniest. So then he, he basically goes from this kind of straight-on praying this way to telling a funny story about uh, something that gets at the heart of prayer. So let's just go back over that real quick here. Um, he's ta- he, the story is about a friend going to another friend's house way past when he should, like it's inappropriate, an inappropriate time of night. And of course the friend says, I'm not getting up, the door's locked, I'm, yeah, you need three loaves of bread? Big deal, I'm not getting out of bed. And in response to that, Jesus says that the guy in the house says, well, I, uh, even though he wouldn't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough at the door— <laughs> He's eventually going to get up and give you whatever you want because of your what Jesus says is shameless persistence. So what is he really saying here? He's, he's playfully and almost a comic way saying, look, prayer is like knocking on the door, and the master in this story is really him. <laughs> he's the person who doesn't want to get out of bed in this parable, and we are the ones knocking on the door, and we need something. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, we need three loaves of bread in the middle of the night. <laughs> maybe, he had a, maybe he has a wife who's pregnant, and she has a hankering for toast. I don't know. But the master doesn't want to get up. Uh, the master of the house doesn't want to get up. But in Jesus' story, he says, but the shameless persistence of the person, eventually the master gets out of bed and gives him what he wants. It's a funny way of saying, you know what? In, as you pray, as you talk to your Abba, first of all, it's playful— that's why he told a playful story. But also, persistence matters. Why does persistence matter? Shameless persistence. It's because I think it's an expression of our faith and trust, that we're not giving up. That when you knock for a while and you get a, like, no, I'm not coming down, your shameless persistence is a way of showing, hey, no, I, I know you're going to get up. I'm going to stay here until you get up. It's a, it's a very familiar, relaxed way of treating what it is you're asking for. It's not a formula you're trying to live out. Instead, it's a relationship you're trying to depend upon in your time of need. So, so even the shameless persistence part of this, Jesus is saying, yeah, I like that. Be shamelessly persistent with me, because that's one form of intimacy. So I just, I just love that little story that he tax on. In our last uh, our last episode of this podcast, uh, Becky and I went through three chapters or four chapters of John, and one of them was John chapter 17, where Jesus prays out loud. One of the interesting things about that is if you go back and look at John 17, that's actually a perfect little thing to do sometime in the, in the week following you listening to this podcast. Go back to John 17 and just kind of sink into it, because Jesus did something he didn't often do. He prayed out loud for a long period of time in front of his disciples because he wanted them to hear not just what he prayed about, but the way he prayed about things. So I'd encourage you to to dive into John 17 in the week following listening to this episode and uh, use this filter as you read. 
don't concern yourself so much about what Jesus is praying for in John 17. Pay particular attention to how he prays. How would you describe the way that he is praying? Similar to the way that I kind of moved slowly through the Lord's Prayer just a few minutes ago, read John 17 that same way and see what truths emerge about the heart of Jesus as you slow down and pay attention to that. So there, there's a little thinking uh, about some ways Jesus modeled what prayer is really like. Uh, you know, the, the thing that uh, I didn't touch on in these two or three examples is that Jesus often went out alone to pray by himself. He spent a lot of time in what, you know, you, you could call his inner room. And part of that going to the inner room and praying by yourself is that it's, it's, it's the same way in any intimate relationship. My wife and I go on a, a walk pretty much every day so that we can have intimate, focused time with each other, because life is chaotic, we have kids, we have all kinds of things going on. Going for a, Taking our dog for a walk around the neighborhood allows us to focus and, and kind of dig deeper into each other's soul as we walk. It shuts out other distractions. So Jesus did that himself quite a lot. He shut out all the other distractions and just went to a quiet place to spend intimate time with his Father to recalibrate and to commune with him. And, you know, when we pray, what's true is that Jesus often reorients our perspective when we pray. It's not so much whether we get the thing we're praying for. I've found that as I'm in deeper conversation with Jesus, sharing things in a more intimate way, he reorients my perspective about myself and about life. The other night in our small group, I had asked everybody at the end to simply, again, close their eyes, and instead of talking to Jesus, just ask him a simple question— and the question was, hey, Jesus, what's on your mind for me tonight? That was the simple question. I asked them all just to spend a minute in quiet and to wait and for whatever, whatever Jesus had to say about that to surface for them and to write it down if, they, if anything did. And so I do the same thing while they're doing it, and while I was quiet, and I, I said, Jesus, what's on your mind for me tonight? What he said back to me was something like this, I'm painting a, a masterpiece— that is the story of your life right now, and the fact that I'm in the left-hand bottom corner where I'm painting a shadow in the picture, if you just paid attention to the darkness of what I'm painting right now, then you wouldn't see the whole of the picture that I'm painting, so don't do that. <laughs> he was basically saying, you know, with the, with the struggles and challenges you're dealing with right now, don't get lost in the part of the painting where it's just dark paint, because that's just one part of the whole picture. I want you to uh, withhold judgment <laughs> for, for that right now, and so that you can stand back and see, get little glimpses of the real picture I'm painting in your life right now. Well, that is playful, intimate, and reorienting. And if you ask just that simple question, Jesus, what's on your mind for me? I do this a lot. Uh, it's a common practice, because I just need my perspective reoriented. So let's give you a few things before we close off here. If Jesus is really our rabbi, and that means he's inviting us into this kind of immersive relationship with him that will infect us with his, with his presence and his personality, well, what can we do to demystify prayer and make it more of a part of an everyday relationship? So here's a few things. One thing that you can do, and my wife does this, it really helps her in her prayer, is to simply journal your prayers. 
some people, it helps them to collect their thoughts and gives them kind of an intentionality with their prayer and also opens them to intentional response. That the, As they write and journal, they're actually in conversation with God, and they light and perspective emerges as they write. So instead of simply uh, silently praying your prayers or praying them out loud, consider, even if you've never done this before, try it once, simply writing out your prayer. And, and if it helps, just say, I'm going to take one minute, and I'll write out my prayer, so it doesn't feel like it's, it's too much. But it allows you to interact with something that's actually physical, when you can't see, hear, touch, taste God. If you write out your prayer, it allows you to kind of touch something as you pray, something physical, and I, I don't know, it, 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 it helps. I, I know it's really helped my wife. That's the primary way she prays, is by writing out her prayers. Another thing to, to think about is pray in a more dependent way. What I mean by that is, as you pray, no matter if it's just yourself alone or with your pray, or you're praying for someone else, pray dependently by asking Jesus first. Ask the Holy Spirit first to help you to pray, and don't just give it lip service. Say, Jesus, before I pray for this, can you please show me how to pray? And then wait for his guidance. You may want to say, I want to silence my own voice and the voice of your enemy, God, right now, before you listen. You may feel like you want to take that authority and make sure you're only hearing from the voice of Jesus. Um, but the, the idea here is, to, before you pray for anybody, or for even in your own prayer time, ask Jesus first for help on how to pray, and then wait until you have some guidance on how to do that. I was talking with our friend Steph Hilbury the other day, and she, she, uh, she said something that's transformed her life in the, in the world of prayer, is that she now has uh, she has a, a sister that she's close to but doesn't often talk to, and then they'd have these long conversations on the phone every every other month or so. And she, so Steph decided, what if we what if instead we had a conversation every week on the phone on Fridays at lunch is when they have this conversation. And and uh, she said the thing that transformed the way that she prays is that as she was talking to her sister, her sister in mid conversation would just take that conversation into prayer. If there was a concern or a worry or an anxiety or something that they were expressing and trying to process in your normal way, instead of just processing in your normal way, you also included Jesus in the conversation. You just, in a normal, everyday tone of voice, in the same way you were talking to your friend, you just share that same need with Jesus, or you ask for guidance from Jesus in the middle of the conversation. I just love that. Steph called it toggling between the normal way we process things and prayer. You just go back and forth between the two in a normal way, and that's how she and her sister have this conversation, and I just love that. We just verbalize whatever's happening to us in the moment, and it jolts us out of our kind of self-focus, so that's another way. Here's another thing to think about. You know, when somebody shares a concern with you and, and, and asks for prayer, instead of saying that you'll pray— just pray. Uh, as often as possible, instead of putting off prayer, just do it right then. Make it more normal, casual, every day. I often, with my wife, I don't close my eyes when I pray. So if we're walking around the neighborhood talking, and there's something, I, I, I feel this nudge inside, I just start praying where I had just been talking before. <laughs> and I, I pray with my eyes open, uh, so it looks like a normal conversation, but I'm actually sharing whatever it is we're going through with Jesus at that point. So the, the point is, though, that in the moment, instead of saying, 
uh, I'll pray, like this is a formal thing that I'm going to do differently later on, just pray right then in a normal, casual way. And, and try praying with your eyes open sometimes and see how that impacts the way that you pray. And another way that you can do this, I said my wife and I walk around our neighbor, but you can also, if you're, if you're alone at some point, you're just taking a walk, you can walk around your neighborhood and praying for the people in the homes that you pass. Just ask, don't, don't make it a job, just say, Holy Spirit, when you nudge me about a home that I pass, I will pray for whoever's in there, just give me guidance on how to do that. It's in a prayer adventure. Um, that you can do, uh, just walking around your neighborhood. It's a way that you can participate in the in the kingdom of God, setting captives free in that home, without even having to know the people. Just ask Jesus to guide you. Finally, a, a final thing to think about, um, keep knocking on the door. Take Jesus at his word. He told a funny story for a reason. He, shameless persistence he likes, and he honors and respects it. So be shamelessly persistent with him. Keep knocking on his door. It's an act of intimacy when you do. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information about all the stuff we talked about here today, but in further detail on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're just looking for uh, the podcast section there in Season 3 and Episode 7. Don't forget those practical guides we're talking about, how to pray, how to know God's will, how to read the Bible. They release on February 27th, and uh, you can get them in pre-release right now on group.com and on Amazon.com. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk again next time.